even if we can't finish every case in 26 weeks, I would urge judges to think carefully about imposing an unrealistic timetable. There will be some cases we can finish properly in 30 weeks, and that additional four weeks actually may be a triumph of effort rather than a failure of will. Welcome to the Resolution Podcast. This month, we are joined by Hannah Markham, KC, Natasha Watson and Caroline Lynch, and we're going to be discussing public law cases. So uh, before we get into it, perhaps I could ask each of you to tell us a bit about yourself and what you do in this field of law. Can I start with you, please, Natasha? Hello, I am Natasha Watson. I am a local authority hack. I've worked for local authorities for over 20 years now, to my shame, because that makes me very old. And I also sit as local authority representative on the Family Justice Council, and I'm head of safeguarding law for Brighton and Hove City Council. Thank you. And Caroline? Hi, I'm Caroline Lynch. I'm a barrister who um, specialised in children's public law for nearly 20 years now. I, Since 2016, I've been the principal legal advisor at Family Rights Group, uh, where I help lead the uh, charity's work influencing child welfare law policy and the family justice system. I should say a little bit about Family Rights Group for those who don't know us so well. We run a free specialist independent advice service for parents and kinship carers to help them understand their rights and options and navigate child welfare processes. We provide resources and training consultancy for a range of practitioners. And we're sort of very committed to finding innovative and family-led ways to improve the child welfare system. We introduced FGCs to the country and we develop lifelong links to support children having lasting relationships in the care system. Thank you. And finally, Hannah, congratulations on your appointment. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, Yes, I'm head of team at 36 Family. I specialise predominantly in children law and some interesting human rights sort of add-ons to that. Um, I am also currently the chair of the Family Law Bar Association and chair of Women in Family Law. I was on the uh, working group for the public law review and special guardianship review. I think we've got the final sign off on that coming up soon. Thank you. So I think we've got to start with the current cost of living uh, crisis and the impact of it on family justice and uh, also whether it's having an impact on outcomes for children. Could I turn to you first, uh, Natasha, in respect of that? I think it will be obvious to anyone who's feeling the pinch themselves that if you start from a depleted position anyway, the cost of living crisis, the impact on you is multiplied by several factors. If you start with not very much, to have the not very much you have taken away can be disastrous. And it's really important, I think, for local authorities to take that into account in their practice. And I don't just mean in terms of individual cases, but I think it's something people have to think about as a strategy. So one of the things that we've done in Sussex is we've launched a family court anti-poverty practice statement 
where we're really asking social workers to think about what is the impact on poverty on a particular family and make a crucial distinction between uh, poverty and lack of parenting capability. The two are distinctly different and need to be recognised as such. And uh, do you have anything to add to that, Caroline? Yeah, I, I think the it's just so important to sort of take note that we're not we weren't we're not starting from a situation of ease or a well-resourced child welfare system. It it's been really clear for some time that this is a system that's overstretched and overwhelmed. Those were really clear messages back in 2018 when the Care Crisis Review was reporting. That phrase was used, a palpable sense of unease about lack of resources, poverty and deprivation, making it really hard for families and the system to cope. So the cost of living crisis is being mapped on top of that, mapped on top of all of the challenges and uh, difficulties the pandemic uh, presented. And I'd agree with, with what Natasha has said. At those points, we're hearing on our advice line, certainly from lots of parents, fearful that if they contact local services, contact children's services and talk about how they are struggling financially, that will be heard or treated as though they are neglecting their children. That's that sort of fear that they hold. And if you move over to think about wider family and friends and the kinship care population, they're often older, grandparents often retired, don't have obvious routes to bring additional household income in or work extra hours and are often caring for children raising for children who've got additional needs and so the cost of living crisis really really bites on them and makes it incredibly difficult and and again we're hearing from kinship carers who are really struggling and weighing up whether this placement can survive and that the financial challenges that they're facing do you think courts have struggled to draw a distinction between what is the impact of poverty and what is the impact of um, poor parenting? I think it's not always recognised and it's something that needs to be thought out, thought about. Because one of the things that our local anti-poverty statement says is that poverty is exhausting. And it's really essential that practitioners listen to parents and understand uh, that sometimes it can be too overwhelming to take on new information and tasks. And there's some very practical things that can be done about that, which is actually just thinking about the financial impact of some of the tasks families are being asked to undertake. So things like travelling to contact, attending various interventions, actually, is there a reason why they cannot do that? It used to be that local authorities would routinely pay travel expenses for contact. And now, because of our own financial position, that's something we look at very carefully. But all of these things, I think, are accumulative. And it's a really good point that Caroline makes about families being afraid to ask for help. But actually, there can be help available. The tragedy is now that sometimes the council is forced to use limited resources to step in to provide really the most basic floor level standard of living. 
with families finding themselves facing really appalling deprivation. And that isn't a child protection issue. This is where I think it's important to make a distinction. It can become a child protection issue if it's not addressed, but what is required to address it probably isn't care proceedings. What is required to address it is assistance. So I think this places social workers in a very difficult situation. And of course, sometimes the gap we see between how professionals live their lives and how the families they're dealing with live their lives appears to have just become larger and larger. One of the things I'd say that I'm sometimes aware of when I go to court, particularly when we're in person more in court, is the chit chat in court about somebody's lovely holiday or somewhere they've been and just how very alienating that might feel to a parent who's listening to that and those are the same people who are going to be judging them later and so I think it's important that we're also respectful just on that alone. So what has been the impact of that on pre-proceedings work and what should representatives be looking for? I was instrumental in some of the public law working group pre-proceedings guidance and one of the things that we were keen to emphasise in that guidance is that pre-proceedings is an opportunity to divert from the need for proceedings that is really what the purpose of it should be whilst at the same time doing the work to the standard that it can be used in court and that work doesn't need to be repeated And I think when we look at the growing cost of living crisis and the impact of poverty on parents, we should remind ourselves of the emphasis in that guidance of relationship working, forming relationships with parents and understanding what their challenges are, as well as critiquing what they do and working with them in that positive way. So that involves us thinking from their perspective, as well as an objective perspective around parent capability. And that would include considering their practical needs and trying to identify, is it a capability issue here or is it a practical issue which can be met in other ways? Have you seen an improvement in pre-proceedings work, Hannah? Um, No, not yet. Um, What I've seen is... Uh, an awareness from family law practitioners that we do all need to start thinking about how we can change pre-proceedings and the support and guidance that um, we can give to those on the ground. And I've been delivering some workshops on the re-emergence or the resurrection or whatever we want to call it of the PLO. Um, I was struck by sort of the discord um, between those local authorities that do it well and get it right and those local authorities who really need some better training and guidance, both with the legal department and the social work department. So I think, and I, my personal view is if we start with the legal departments, they're going to be able to assist and guide their social work teams to how they can um, work with the parents. And Sarah Johnson, who I sort of work with quite closely from um, Barnet, she very much believes in a, better checklists so that there is perhaps a more uniform checklist that um, parents and local authorities can use 
so that you both know what you expect of each other. So when you go for the meeting, you can say, so, well, we, we expect you parents to be looking at this. And the parents go, well, we think you're going to help with this or you're going to do this. So you can have another meeting to check that both both sets have been doing what's expected of them. And also then when you go to court, the courts can say, was there a checklist in this case? Can I have a look at it? Um, and part of that checklist can be looking at other family members. Have we gone to the other family members? Did we do a pre-proceedings family group meeting, for example? You know, um, and it brings in the other family members into the pre-proceedings in a far more dynamic way, which I know when we were discussing on the public law working group, I think both Caroline and Natasha, were, for different reasons, thought that was quite important. So I do think it feels like there needs to be a little bit more central training that then can be brought out to all the different departments so whilst I haven't seen any actual changes I have seen a lot of discussion and a lot of uh, desire to affect those changes and I think that's positive. It's it's interesting what Hannah says about the need for good legal advice because one of the things we looked at in the public law working group was when should a referral be made to legal and it will the legal department by social workers when they're considering the possibility of proceedings and it will be no surprise to anyone listening to this that practice varies enormously between local authorities in my own local authority we take an approach that an earlier the better and we set our own threshold and our own threshold was if care proceedings are a real possibility that cannot be ignored and some of you may recognize that phrase Um, which we've rather stolen, if care proceedings are a real possibility that cannot be sensibly ignored, if things don't change, that is the time to come to the legal department. We very often find there's no issue about threshold. We can see that threshold is met, but where the legal department can be helpful is saying, okay, well, threshold is met, but, but, and it's the but that's always important. It's important to think about how can we divert this family? And if we can't, What would we need to evidence in court? One of the things uh, we looked at locally years ago in order to get better at our pre-proceedings work was understanding that if we were going to do social work assessments or if we were going to pay for another agency to do a programme of work with parents or if we were even going to get expert assessment, it was really important that was done fairly. And I think there's an enormous variety between local authorities as to how that is done. My own view is if some form of specialist assessment or programme of work is initiated, there needs to be a proper letter of instruction. There needs to be a list of documentation that went to the person conducting that assessment. And there needs to be proper review of the outcome of it. And those kind of analytical assessment drafting things are all things that lawyers should be good at. They are not necessarily the skill set of a social worker who's trying to form a relationship with a family. And that's where legal departments and social workers can work together, including to review the evidence to see, well, actually, now have we met the threshold where we do need to go into proceedings? Or is there something more that could be done to avoid that need? And that will, of course, include involving the wider family. And of course, sometimes in local authorities, We have parents who are extremely resistant to that. And the trick is to work out why they're resistant. Are they resistant? 
because actually there's an element of personal risk to them for their wider family knowing what's going on. I would say those cases are extremely rare, but they are there. So it's something we need to consider. Or are they resistant because they're embarrassed or are they resistant because actually they're just resistant to everything? And we do have families who are resistant to everything. And then we need to exercise powers of persuasion about why it's very, very important to involve wider family. Because if we're talking about support needs, generally speaking, the family might be the best place to get those parents supported. Um, I was just going to say a couple of, couple of things about variations in practice and also sort of basic principles around pre-proceedings work. I totally agree that we've actually got huge variations in practice around the country with regards to the formal pre-proceedings process. And I think that sort of follows on from variations in practice around child protection processes and work that's done at that stage. Because ultimately, that formal pre-proceeding stage is pretty late. It's it's an acute phase. You know, levels of concern are high. And I think I'd be really keen that as a system, we put appropriate emphasis there, but also are saying, actually, what are the earlier points? What were the earlier opportunities and what was the quality and consistency of work then? So taking the example of exploring the wider family and friends network, both as a source of support and a source of you know, alternative care, be that short, medium or longer term. Those are things that sensibly can be happening during a child protection process as part of child protection planning, as part of a child protection conference. If we're only just thinking about that come the formal pre-proceeding stage, that is, that's relatively late on. So I think there's just a little bit of sort of resetting and uh, reorientating our perspective about what is timely. The other point I was going to make is that we we have relatively little insight. There's no national pre-proceedings data set, though I know there's lots of work thinking about that. But there's also, you know, real variations in how local authorities and indeed whether they collect sort of child and family level um, information about the pre-proceedings process and how children and families experience it and whether they feed that back into how they work and what they're doing. So I think there's, there's quite a messy picture there if you want to really understand improvement and practice and so on. And the gaping hole from my perspective and from a sort of a FRG perspective is about the, you know, the scope of the legal advice that's available during the formal pre-proceeding stage, which I know is really problematic for uh, your high street solicitors frustrated by what they can offer, affects who is in the pre-proceedings meeting. I think that mirrors, again, the limitations in what is available by way of independent legal advice to families at those earlier stages during child protection conferences, when advice is really, really needed and, and really crucial. It's so true, that comment about the paucity of available legal advice. And it really makes a difference. We often find that we've got solicitors effectively acting pro bono at the pre-proceeding stage, doing way more than they're actually paid for. And those are the people that can make a real difference to the outcomes. Even if we go into proceedings, they can make a real difference to the outcomes because they've built up a level of trust. And it does make a difference when we see um, parents properly represented. It's a fairer process. Fairer is always better. And actually, fairer is in the interests of the council who might then take proceedings because 
when we think about uh, the call on us all now to do get back to 26 weeks, that only works if you don't do repeat assessments. You will need to do repeat assessments if you haven't got it right pre-proceedings. So fairness is in everyone's interests, and I feel strongly that there is a real gap in the legal aid provision, but sadly, I don't see any prospect that will change given the other gaps there are in legal provision. And it really comes back to local government being on its best behaviour and the local authority lawyer in particular thinking, I don't want to do anything that wouldn't withstand scrutiny later on. So it's really important, I think, in that fair way to try and level up this playing field as far as I can. And I know that lots of people listening in will say voice of the child, representation of the child at that pre-proceeding right, stage. So I would be remiss if I didn't flag that too. And I know that there are some discussions um, afoot to see how that might be affected. Uh, people are very mindful of that. And I say people, the powers that be at the senior echelons. Um, but I think those listening in would be shouting, voice of the child. So um, I think it's right that we flag that. And I can I say, I think that's particularly important when we look at the demographics of uh, the children who are involved in proceedings now. The demographic has demographics have changed. We have a lot of older children yeah. involved pre-proceedings, probably more than we've ever had had before, partly because thresholds have changed. There's a recognition around sexual exploitation, criminal exploitation. These are all things that involve older children. And if we um, think about all the issues with secure accommodation, which I know could be a whole podcast on its own, um, that relates to older children. So there is something really appalling about them not having clear independent voice in pre-proceedings unless they are looked after of course if they're looked after then they are entitled to and do receive the services of an independent advocate but if they're not looked after under section 20 then we might be discussing older children without them having a very clear voice in the room which seems quite wrong to me i think also it's you know the 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 underlying principle of, of the legislation itself is partnership working with children and families. It's on the face of working together that that's what constitutes a child-centred approach, working in partnership with child and children and families. It puts me in mind of how the use of family group conferences varies hugely, but also you see significant variation in whether children are involved in family group conferences. I think there's certainly lots of people who don't realise that it's it's an approach which can include and makes provision for the involvement of children. And we know that FGCs in the statutory guidance are very much foregrounded as a particularly valuable way of exploring sources of support, of engaging families, working in partnership and so on. So it feels to me like we, we have tools there not easy answers, but we have tools and approaches that we can use. We have the really strong partnership underpinning of the legislation and the system and individual practices and always act on that in the way we'd want. I'm surprised that we've got this far without without getting into the detail of 26 weeks and whether it's achievable. So I think we should just grasp the, the bull by the horns here. And why don't we start with you, um, Hannah, and you said you were doing some training about it. So obviously you think that is achievable then, 26 weeks. Oh. 
depends <laughs> on the case, Anita. Depends on the case. There will be those cases that it is going to be achievable. Those cases that come from a really good local authority who have gone through the pre-proceedings in the correct and fair manner and have followed the process diligently and there's been good legal advice and you've got a really good experienced social work team who haven't left knowing that there is a real issue about retention of social workers at the moment and then you get to court and the evidence is pretty clear and then the parent shows a degree a modicum of insights they don't contest things yes then it's highly achievable however Let's just say you've got one of those cases where sadly you've had five social workers before you even got to court, where the uh, application is then suddenly made because there's a crisis that happens, even though the family's being supported and sustained for a while, that changes the evidential backlog to the case that then necessitates another expert, even though experts have already been involved in the pre-proceedings. Oh, and then there's a uh, parallel police investigation and they don't give you the disclosure in a timely fashion. And then there's an issue with the backlog of listing. And even if you might be ready, you can't get a court date for another four months or five months. 26 weeks might become a bit more of a pipe dream. I think the point about the 26 weeks, and it's taken me a while to actually get on board with this, and I will be honest about that, is what do you do when you're the president of the family division Mm -hmm. and your system is in crisis? And you've got serious delays and families are waiting too long and children are stuck too long. You go back to basics and it's not going to happen overnight. 26 weeks is unlikely to be achievable in the vast majority of cases. But it's about reminding us all that this was a really carefully considered process that has its merits. It has things that we have we ought to have learned better from along the way. We have been diverted by COVID. That did divert us a lot. And I think it's, and I understand, and my view is, I can see why the president, uh, Mr. Justice Kean, are really trying to bring us back. I, I mean, I was involved in the working group. I listened to lots of people. It was a really dynamic, challenging group environment. I mean, Caroline was very challenging (laughs) on behalf of (laughs) the family members. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I mean, in a really positive way, reminding us of the voice of the families. Um, And there were different challenges between even some of the different local authority voices we had involved. But what I'm reminded about that is the real energy that comes from all of us that want to create a better system. We all know it's broken. So... No, 26 weeks is highly unlikely to be achievable for the next couple of years, but we ought to be working towards the majority of cases being resolved within the next few years, because the system being broken, we need to take some time to fix it. Let's hear your challenges, Caroline. I don't think the central proposition that, you know, timeliness in proceedings and before proceedings is crucial. I mean, it is so important for children and families. And I think we're in a really challenging and especially challenging situation post-COVID with with backlogs. So I understand all that and and fully accept all of that. I suppose where where I, I think we need to be really sure that we're not losing nuance and not losing sight of a bigger picture 
is when we talk only or largely about 26 weeks and we focus on that KPI as the measure of success or something less than success. Because what this is all about is coming up with the right plan for a child and those plans and their family, I should say, because those plans have lifelong consequences for children and families. It sounds trite, but, you know, sometimes we just have to bring ourselves back to actually what we're all doing and, and trying to do here. And, you know, the, the 26 weeks, you know, it's instru- enshrined in statute, but so is the provision for extension thereof. We know the law gives us space for planned and purposeful delay, and there are those cases that will need that. We know that where assessment work is found wanting or is rushed or is, you know, condensed into a timetable, which it just really can't cope with, that what the court ends up with is, you know, inadequate analysis and we open up space for poorer decision making and, again, decisions that are not right for children and families. So I suppose my call really is this isn't about let's get the case done. This is about getting the case done in the right way, in the fair way. And I think, you know, that quote from the, the past president about sacrificing justice on the altar of speed stand, stands true. But I think it's in, in system terms, what would really help is when, you know, the number of weeks proceedings are taking, being um, the number of weeks that proceedings are taking, when that's recorded, we need to take out those cases where there's extensions, you know, so we're looking at an accurate picture the timetable's been extended, then we want to look at those that data separately from the data relating to cases where there have been no extensions. I think that's all part of the the nuance that I'm that I'm really calling for. What does the local authority say about it, Natasha? The local authority says that where the right cases can finish in 26 weeks, they should finish in 26 weeks. That is advantage. That is an advantage to every part of the system. But where cases cannot, with the best will in the world, finish in 26 weeks, for all the reasons that Caroline and Hannah have given, it is absolutely debilitating to every professional in the system to suggest that not concluding within this KPI is a failure. It is not always a failure. It is sometimes an absolutely smart decision to make to achieve justice for a family. And that's what this system should be about. And sometimes families need a little bit longer to make the changes they need to wait make. And in those circumstances, delay can clearly be purposeful. There is some delay, however, which I don't think is particularly purposeful, which unfortunately, I don't know whether these targets will properly address. And that is just the sheer backlog that is the case in the court at the moment and the lack of available listings. With the best will in the world, if you come to an IRH and the next available listing for the five days you need is not for a five another five months well what advocate or family can be blamed if in four months time they say well hey guys things have got a bit better so I need a further assessment now that isn't entirely unreasonable so I do understand when I look at some of the local practice notes that have been published I would say some are in a more nuanced 
and helpful and realistic language than others, I would recommend nuanced and helpful if we want to keep practitioners doing this work. Most people who do family work are not in it for the glory, be it social workers or lawyers or even experts. And so it's really important that we don't not just sacrifice justice, but sacrifice well-being on the altar of speed. I think that's really important. And that can mean things like coming up with realistic timetables in the first place. When the PLO was first brought into being in 2014, I remember working out well, what would an optimum timetable look like. And we realised that really the local authority needed to have made a final decision in relation to its care plan round about week 14 in order to get it to the agency decision maker if the plan was for adoption to give time for that process to be gone through and then time to write up the care plan but let's be a little bit more generous we've got 26 weeks if we've got 26 weeks usually the IRH is round about week 18 so I mean you're not pushing it to say the local authority's got to make his mind up by week 16 and one of the things that I wish we could build in is thinking time care plans should not be developed on the back of an envelope as a knee-jerk response to what is actually quite a complex set of data and quite nuanced assessment it takes time to do this stuff so saying we want to hear from an expert and can the local authority file its final care plan within the week of hearing from that expert almost guarantees that knee-jerk, unsophisticated response. So even if we can't finish every case in 26 weeks, I would urge judges to think carefully about imposing an unrealistic timetable. There will be some cases we can finish properly in 30 weeks and that additional four weeks actually may be a triumph of effort rather than a failure of will. I, you know, endorse everything Caroline said as well. I mean, I slightly tongue in cheek when I said about the challenge, but I think it's really important that having listened to my initial response, which was very much top down, then you listen to how Caroline comes in, um, that those are all the different aspects of this 26 week and the PLO practice that, everybody needs to be mindful of and it's I, I hope that people listening in when they are really tired practitioners worrying about this worrying about their clients rights know that actually there's a lot of thought going into it from a lot of people who've given a lot of time you know you're listening to some voices here about people that tirelessly with the powers that be to make sure that these things remain on track and I think that's really important because a lot of practitioners are finding these changes really quite wearing and don't know how they're going to manage it for their clients as well as their own working practices so sorry I just wanted to say that I think it's quite important well seeing as you have the uh microphone Hannah um <laughs> how's it going to be achieved then is it going to be achieved by having uh less psychologists less expert reports what's your what's your view about that and the impact on, on whether uh, we're getting the right outcomes for these children I think it's I think it's a mistake to conflate the attempts to manage how many experts are used with the approach to the PLO and getting things done in 26 weeks. I think they are distinct and separate um, issues that the present 
president has been mindful of. I think that um, the the concept of getting proper psychological and or psychiatric assessments during the pre-proceedings time is important. But that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be any bar to a proper application being made in the appropriate cases. I feel my senses, my feeling is, is that a lot of people have become anxious, practitioners have become anxious about the sense that we can't instruct experts and where does that leave our clients? And then if we have experts, we can't cross-examine them. And is that going to impact on our ability to properly challenge a case? Will our clients' Article 6 rights go out the window? I think that is a different worry and a different concern and a different thing to keep our eye on to how that factors into the 26 weeks and the PLO. There will always be a time and a place for a proper application, properly made, which is necessary. And I do think as well that if the PLO process is reframed slightly, we go back to what I said originally and what, what was said by others and Natasha about you know getting the training, getting people to understand the proper time to bring that person in, then it doesn't matter that you might not get them during the proceedings. Has there been too much reliance on psychologists then, Natasha? I think probably there has, actually. And I think one of the reasons for that is because if we think about how the PLO was viewed and the and the PR around the PLO back in 2014, which after all is nearly 10 years ago now, it, there was an enormous emphasis on the social worker as expert. And I just feel over the years that whole concept has been downgraded and downgraded and downgraded for a whole combination of reasons, including that social workers sometimes just lack confidence in their own ability. So I don't think local authorities should necessarily complain about the overuse of experts if it's the local authority proposing it, or they're not mounting a full-throated defence of why it's not necessary. And that's what the test is. The, The test is not don't have an expert because it's not going to help the timetable. The test is, is it necessary? And it's the dictionary, as it was helpfully pointed out all those years ago, it's the dictionary, what does necessary mean? Apparently necessary means necessary. So it's not about it being desirable and it's not about it being helpful. But where local authorities need to be on their mettle is if there is no independent expert then the social worker must be able to demonstrate that they have done an analysis and assessment which is full of expertise, social work expertise. And this, I think, is the challenge for everybody. It's very easy to try and dismantle a case. It is harder to make a case if you are the team trying to make the case. And so it sometimes feels safer to rely on that and obviously for local authorities who have real recruitment issues let's be honest there may be some social workers who are less expert than others and that may be help may be a case where it would be of value to have an independent social worker and that's where it's really important that uh, that local authorities nurture their social workers they are an extremely important 
resource and uh, treating them with some respect in court will assist with that. I mean, I'm going to say that my understanding is social workers don't generally feel very nurtured, but, uh, you know, I might be wrong on that. What do you what do you say, Caroline, on behalf of parents? What what what's your concern or agreement about less reliance on on psychologists? Well, I think there's quite an interesting parallel with an analysis of, of the child welfare system and how that system responds under stress and strain and that this idea of retreating into procedural responses. I think the question of whether an expert needs to be instructed or an expert does not need to be instructed is actually about what do we need in order to understand what is happening for this child and family in this case? And what do we need in order to make these complex decisions about this child, which have lifelong consequences? And what material do we need in order to do good care planning? That's what an expert instruction or not instructing an expert is is about. So if we get into, I think we must have experts or we must not have experts, not only is that not what the law says, as uh, Natasha said, it's also somewhat missing the point in, in my view. But I think we also need to go back a step again and look at what is happening before proceedings. The earlier families who are struggling get help, the earlier, you know, think situations are in partnership with them explored, the earlier decisions are made about whether we need to look at wider family and so on. You know, the, the, the more we're going to find, one would hope, that the need, there's the need to proceed into the court arena reduces. This is about safely averting the need to bring cases. Um, And and so I I see all of this as very much tied up in in this same fundamental issue. Um, And there's concern, isn't there, about the availability of experts as well and people with the right expertise in these cases is that is that something you're butting up against all of the time can i say something about the availability of expertise in ETA? because i think it's important it's the availability of the right expertise i think one of the difficulties we see is people not being clear about well what is the question that you actually need answered because if you don't know that then I don't really know what a psychological assessment is. There's got to be something more than that nebulous title. And of course, we've seen a bit of discussion about that in the recent case of RE-C, looking at a parental alienation case, to coin a phrase, where there's been a lot of very helpful discussion, I think, in that case about, well, do we want a psychologist or do we want a clinical psychologist? If we want a clinical psychologist, what is the area in which they need expertise? Because there's no doubt at all that time and valuable resources can be wasted if we're going to someone who someone who claims they have expertise that they don't actually have. So I understand that nowadays you test out the placement for with special guardians whilst the proceedings are still live and obviously that feeds into our earlier discussion about 26 weeks has that been a positive change to your mind Caroline? Um, I think first really important to note that 
children for whom special guardianship is being considered may have very different relationships with the potential carer. So some may know the carer well through a very direct relationship, being in that person's home or vice versa. Others may also have a close relationship, but that's played out through telephone and uh, video calls and so on. But nevertheless, care and child may know each other well. And then there's those cases where the the care and child don't have a pre-existing relationship or, or don't know each other well. So the assessment, any assessment process and the court process needs to be able to attune and attend to those quite different scenarios and where appropriate consider in interim placements and interim moves for children. But I definitely put the emphasis, as the Public Law Working Group uh, report did, on the importance of relationship building, the role of contact during and following assessment and in the course of proceedings. I think the other thing that I'd probably want to emphasise is that there are different dimensions to that kind of interim move. So it may afford you a really important opportunity for the court and the parties, a really important opportunity to understand what financial and practical support the child and need we've got an opportunity to see if what's been set out in the proposed support plan is likely to be what is needed and I think that goes to the wider point that it's really important the contents of support plans aren't deemed as something to be more fully attended to after proceedings that the fine detail of them is really sort of anxiously examined and that carers prospective carers have proper advice on those plans and too often we know that the scope of the advice that they get is one-off advice, care of a high street solicitor working with a pretty small pot of money that's coming, not from the legal aid agency, but from the local authority. And, and that's certainly a problem, as is variations in practice in relation to special guardianship support. We see a large number of local government and social care ombudsman decisions regarding or practice and actually misinterpretation of the law regarding special guardianship support and financial support decisions highlighting lack of transparency about how support decisions are made and financial packages calculated. All of those things need to be really scrutinised, I would say, during the thought process and the assessment process. I think probably the, the other comment I would make is that it's, it's worth really looking at that advice angle and how that connects with interim um, moves for children. We, we provide the secretariat for the APPG on kinship care, and they did a recent inquiry looking at legal aid and advice for kinship carers. And those who responded to, to surveys and participated in the inquiry, you know, a, a large percentage of those, I think 82 care, a percent of carers were saying they didn't feel they knew enough about their legal options but at the time they were having to make an informed decision about the best option for the kinship child. And I think four in ten had not received any legal advice about um, their right option regarding interim arrangements and final arrangements. And I think just for sort of one final point, which is the interim move, the order, the legal framework under which that happens has huge consequences. The child's not going to remain looked after under Section 20 or under an interim care order, for example, then that's not a kinship foster care arrangement and there won't be any fostering allowance. If the child moves under a time limited child arrangements order, then that's going to mean once the SGO is made, the child won't have been looked after immediately before the order was made. That has implications 
because it will mean that when the final order is made, that child won't have priority school admission, the school won't be able to claim pupil premium, and there's wider implications beyond that. Those are things that practitioners in the court really need to understand, I think. When you say they're contacting you and saying they're really struggling, are proceedings still live then, or are you talking about it's been a few years down the line? You've, you've got a mixed bag. You've got those who are in the process of being assessed, probably aren't parties to court proceedings or have had one off advice, you know, from high street solicitors trying to do their best with a very small uh, payment that's coming from the local authority, not from, you know, from the legal aid agency, uh, trying to give advice on the sufficiency of a support plan. So you've got that stream, of course, and we've got special guardians who have secured the order um, who may only be, you know, a year down the line and are really struggling. And that can be because circumstances have changed. It can be because local authorities change their allowance policies and overnight are saying, actually, that's being cut. Or it, it, it simply is the case that, you know, the cost of living has risen. The ch- child that they're caring for has additional needs. And what's being provided is just not enough to support that placement. Has it been a positive change to your to the local authority experience having that testing out, Natasha? I think this has the potential to have saved lives. I think we need to remember where this guidance and this change in the law came from. It came from absolutely appalling cases, including a case in which a child had died. And in no other field would we make a placement that is meant to secure a lifelong relationship without any testing of the water in part for all the reasons Caroline has given there is a massive difference between what a family may think it's going to be like caring for a child particularly sometimes slightly older children who come from backgrounds of trauma with a whole variety of challenging behavior as a result and special needs as a result so these are children who of course will be loved with by their family but they require really high levels of support and they require their family to be supported in order for that to take place and for me this is a really good example of where slowing down the 26-week process where there is a serious possibility of a family member being available is very important And I remember it's not so long ago when the PLO was initiated. I remember attending a meeting with a very senior high court judge who'd been instrumental in parts of the PLO saying to me, I just don't understand why you need so long to do these assessments. Why can't you just do them all in six weeks? Well, of course, we could do them in six weeks. They'd just be absolutely rubbish assessments. You wouldn't assess an adopter in six weeks. Um, why would you assess family members? And of course, if you assess them in six weeks, you may rule a lot of them out because what you're not doing is giving them any opportunity to take on board really quite difficult information about people within their family. Many families are not very accepting of the information we're giving them at the beginning as to why they need to be involved in the first place. They may have a vision of a particular child, which is not actually who that child is. And we need to be confident that they know who they're going to be looking after 
and what is going to be involved in that. And we're asking people to do incredibly difficult tasks. So this is an area where a sophisticated, child-centred, family-centred approach cannot be rushed. But if it's done right, it can achieve an absolutely fantastic outcome for the child. But doing it within the constraints of 26 weeks is very challenging indeed and I would really urge those listening to be listening to be resistant if they're being asked to truncate the time frames for doing these assessments to below what was in the um, president's guidance and the SGO guidance that is not going to end well that is going to end with unsafe practice. And Hannah, what about on uh, behalf of the child? What do you say about this change? Um, well, I mean, picking up on everything that was said, it's about them having a safe, secure, lifelong placement, isn't it? So what do we need to make sure that we get it right for them? Because a child who suffered trauma, emotional, physical harm, doesn't need to be placed in another situation where they're not going to get what they need and that they are at risk. I do still think there are certain judges that need to be more attuned to the guidance. I'm still hearing cases where there's less thought given to the prospective special guardians and contact and rebuilding relationships earlier on. I think that's vital. Um, and I'm all, I also think a lot of practitioners need to get a little bit more scrubbed up on the guidance and on the regulations because as Caroline just said scrutiny of the special guardianship support plan what they can expect what is mandatory what is discretionary and I think a lot of people don't quite read those regs well enough and don't necessarily scrutinize those support plans and so for the for the child that's that's vital you know they need that the carers need to have all the tools the child needs to have the support I do. I mean, in practice, it's normally the child's advocate that says, uh, let's have a look at that support plan. But I do think that those representing the special guardians need to, to get, be a bit more on it, actually. The, the guidance, the regs aren't easy to follow, but it's important that practitioners know how they work. Is there any way you can go for a summary or some detail or do you do you literally have to read through the regs? I mean, every local authority probably should have something on their website saying what their policy, policy. is in relation to support. Um, and obviously what a support plan looks like is going to vary enormously child to child. And, you know, we know the reality is the resources available to meet those needs will vary. But I would say, for example... Almost every child who's the subject to special guardianship one ought to be thinking about education, care and health plan, mm. which would give a statutory right for support with things like uh, challenging behaviour and any special educational needs. But we know that special guardians might need some support in being the best advocate they can be for those children. And one of the huge advantages in uh, a, a decision being made that final orders should not be made until children have been in situ for a decent period is that then the support plan can be informed by the reality and not a prediction of what the reality might feel like. 
and that also relates to contact arrangements because there are families that can very much be left to organise this for themselves. And there are other families, I can think of cases recently, where the hostility between the parents and the um, familial special guardians really did risk the collapse of that placement and required ongoing intervention from the local authority. And sometimes I think there's scope for child arrangements orders in those cases. And of course, child arrangements orders aren't necessarily a, an animal with which local government lawyers are particularly familiar, but we do really need to be thinking about them in cases where the local authority is stepping away. Thank you all. That's been really insightful. We'll put the link up certainly to the poverty statement and the cases that you have discussed. For the people listening, if you like what you're listening to, please leave us a five-star review.